Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to the Springs family and friends that are joining us from out of town. Uh, we're so thankful that you're here uh, worshiping with us this morning. Uh, we are um, kicking off a brand new series, but it's not going to be a traditional like week-to-week series. Uh, rather, it's going to be uh, anytime we're kind of in between series, uh, what's kind of often called a standalone Sunday. Uh, we're going to be unpacking uh, a core aspect of our identity as a church uh, that really comes from Isaiah 43, 19. And so anytime you see this bumper video playing, uh, you know that, that we're revisiting uh, who we are as a church and kind of unpacking our DNA and, and why we're here and why we exist. And so uh, the, the practice of remembrance is such an important discipline that we see uh, scattered all over the Old Testament. Time after time, God reminds his people, remember, remember who I am and, and what I've done for you, because oftentimes uh, we forget. Um, and I, I, I think I'm one of the most uh, forgetful people I know. Uh, people are like, man, you're super organized and everything's kind of sorted out. It's because I'm super forgetful. And uh, I've had so many failing experiences of, 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 of forgetting stuff uh, that I've, I, I've had to discipline myself uh, through the act of remembering. Uh, so much so that um, uh, somebody asked me when my son was born and I was like, August 1st. And my wife looked at me and was like, it was totally August 2nd. Uh, but I was like, in my heart, it was, it was August 1st. It was August 1st. Uh, we're forgetful. We, we, we forget things. And oftentimes, uh, we forget the important things. And when we forget the important things, uh, it, it usually leads to all sorts of dilemmas, sometimes ethical dilemmas, sometimes relational dilemmas, and sometimes, as we see in the scriptures, spiritual dilemmas. That when we forget who God is and what he's done, uh, oftentimes we resort to finding refuge and comfort in what this world has to offer instead of remembering that's what God has provided for us in Christ Jesus. And as it relates to who we are as a church, being able to revisit this reminder of, of what is the springs about and why do we exist? We're not just here to do the Sunday morning checkoff activity, go get post-church lunch, take a nap, and then binge watch TV Sunday afternoon before you go back to work on Monday morning. No, rather... The scriptures offer a different vision for this experience, that we would worship God, that we would be transformed, that we would live in community, experience his power and presence for what I believe so that we could spring forth and see transformation in our homes, in our communities, everywhere we go, and be a part of partnering with God and seeing his kingdom advance on earth as it is in heaven. And so this morning, we're going to be unpacking Isaiah chapter 43, which in many ways is is, is sort of this vision verse for this church, uh, that behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And to sort of kind of unpack our time in the scripture together, uh, we have two slides, two points, I mean. Uh, The first is former things, if you're taking notes, and second point is new thing, former things and new thing. Uh, let's pray and let's ask God that he would prepare our hearts to receive this word. Lord, um, I pray that you would uh, come give us 2020 vision uh, to see your word. Uh, Lord, I know that it can be so easy to come into a setting like this with distractions that this upcoming week may bring or that we experienced in the past week. And I pray that by your power, Uh, as we've seen you still seize in stressful situations, that you would come and do that now so that we could look into your word, be transformed by it, and leave different. Leave looking more and more like you. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. Point number one, former things. So what are the former things? Uh, Let's look at verse uh, 14 uh, through 17 in Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, we want to put a Bible in your hand. So at this time, if you just want to shoot up your hand, uh, our team will be uh, moving around handing out Bibles. And uh, I want to invite you to look at the word with me. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, that is yours to keep. You can take it home with you. That is our gift to you. So Isaiah chapter 43, this is going to be in page 604 in the Bible that we just handed you, or if you just want to open up your Bible right to the middle in faith, uh, you'll probably skim around and find the book of Isaiah. And this is what it says in chapter 14, where we're going to pick up. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King." Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse and army. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. What is happening here? As oftentimes as it seems like our experiences in the Old Testament kind of open up and it seems like there's a lot happening here and, and, it, and it's hard to make sense of. Well, where we find ourselves is that in the book of Isaiah, it's actually broken down into three parts and spans a couple hundred years in history. Uh, From Isaiah chapter 1 to chapter 40, uh, this is the period that Isaiah was living in. This was anywhere from 740 to 700 BC. And the period, the time that Isaiah was living in was a violent time. It was a hostile time. Why? Because Assyria, an empire, has just marched onto their doorsteps and has taken this Hebrew nation captive and have enslaved them. And so now they're no longer living in their homeland. They're far from home, exiled. But when we get to about chapters 40 through 55, this is addressed to a completely different people group in a completely different time period. In fact, Isaiah is speaking prophetically about what the Lord is revealing to him about the future. And in this sort of sets of chapters, Isaiah foresees that Assyria will no longer be the oppressive nation. It's going to be a new one. It's going to be Babylon. And, and life is going to look completely different, but yet the same. And in the last uh, uh, set of chapters, 56 through 66, Isaiah begins to describe what time will look like coming out of exile. Uh, so where we find God's people in this moment of history is in that second part. Uh, in, in that part of experiencing brutal enslavement to a powerful nation called Babylon. And the question that comes up is, how did they get there? How did this happen? The short answer is idolatry and sin. Uh, That God's people, instead of bowing down and serving to the one true God, would instead bow down to the gods of the land to find refuge, to find security, to find resources, to find love. And in doing so, would abandon the practices of the Lord and take upon themselves practices that the scriptures call detestable. Practices that don't increase the quality of life, that actually destroy the quality of life. Sacrifices of humans, uh, all sorts of rebellion and brokenness begins to plague this nation. And God in his great sovereignty begins to judge Israel for what they have done. And he uses Babylon as an agent to do so. He uses Babylon to bring about judgment and justice for the rebellion that they're experiencing against him. But here's this amazing promise 
that Isaiah uh, pins down. He's saying where you are right now is not where you always will be. In fact, 200 years before this moment even happened, Isaiah said that you will be captives to Babylon for exactly 70 years. And history testifies that 70 years after Babylon took them into captivity, that they were released by the king. And God foresaw this moment. And, and, and what begins to happen is that God, out of his care for his people, begins to stir up hope inside of them and says, where you are right now is not where you're always going to be. Right now, you are oppressed and you are afflicted, but I'm going to deliver you because I love you. And the question is, well, how is God going to deliver them? Well, let's look at verse 16 and 17 again. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They're extinguished, quenched like a wick. When we read this, when we read this, our minds don't really go a certain place. And that's okay because we're so separated from this culture and context. But when the Hebrews read this, they immediately thought of something. A powerful imagery came into their mind. They said, this sounds a lot like the Exodus. And and, and what is the Exodus? The Exodus is this moment in their people's history where their ancestors, much like them, were enslaved and God came and set them free. And what is happening here is that God is telling his people that they will experience freedom, that they will experience deliverance from Babylon. And one of the ways that the Bible stirs up hope is not by examining the present circumstances but by remembering how God acted in the past. One of the ways uh, hope is stirred up in the Bible is not by examining and looking at the past circumstances, but remembering how God acted in the past. And so what moment in the past is God asking his people to look back to? As we mentioned earlier, the Exodus. And so what is the Exodus? Well, Exodus means departure. Departure from what? Two things. Departure from uh, slavery in Egypt and departure from being in that region and moved to a completely different land. Uh, They were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And the story of the Exodus of the Israelite from Egypt begins with the birth of Moses. And a lot can be said about this story and this movement in history. But the main theme, one of the main themes that we see is redemption. The idea that God's people were enslaved and he buys back his people and sets them free. And in the Exodus, we begin to witness God beginning uh, the promises that he spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That through the children of Israel, though they were enslaved and in a foreign land, God would miraculously bring freedom. Ten plagues over Egypt to get Pharaoh's attention, the parting of the Red Sea so that they could cross turbulent waters in their escape from the Egyptians unharmed. He brought them out of slavery and brought them into the beginning of a new relationship, the beginning of a new nation, a a theocratic nation, a nation that's governed by God and upheld by the law and the sacrificial system that he gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. We see a new thing begin to spring forth. And this story, as simplified as I made it, for time's sake, had incredible power to stir hope in God's people. Had incredible power. Why? Because the people in Babylon now share in the same suffering their ancestors experienced. Uh, But God was able to rescue them. Surely 
he can do it again. This story had incredible power to awaken hope in people's heart. And it wasn't just an idea of hope. It was a reality that people would recount the faithfulness of a God who would deliver his people who were afflicted and oppressed and experiencing all sorts of injustices and call upon the name of the Lord and believe that their current circumstances wouldn't be their forever circumstance. This powerful idea would awaken hope in people's heart. And it wasn't just an idea, it was reality. When Africans were kidnapped from their homes and forced into slavery, exploited to work, robbed of their dignity, and the image of God was denied to them in this nation, the Exodus narrative not only became an instrument of hope for God's people who were experiencing injustice, but as we see in African-American spirituals, the Exodus narrative allowed them to make sense of their situation in light of a God who is acquainted with suffering and provides hope for deliverance. Songs like Go Down Moses, as one author says, the lyrics of the song represent liberation of the ancient Jewish people from Egyptian slavery, a story recounted in the Old Testament for enslaved African Americans. The story was a very, very, was very powerful because they could relate to the experience of Moses and the Israelites who were enslaved by Pharaoh, representing the slaveholders. And it holds the hopeful message that God will help those who are persecuted. Songs like we sang this morning uh, that are inspired by this Exodus narrative that God will bring deliverance and that hope is on the way and that the current circumstance won't be the forever circumstance. This story that we're reading that is in this word had incredible power to awaken hope in people's lives. And it wasn't just an idea. It was reality. So much so that when slave-owning nations in the 1800s began to colonize the West British Indies, the islands in the Caribbean, uh, Jamaica, Barbados, uh, they published a slave Bible so that the Exodus story would never get in these people's hands and uprisings could be discouraged. A version of the Bible where 90% of the Old Testament is missing and 50% of the New Testament is missing. And there are three in existence today. One is currently at the Museum of the Bible. Scriptures that clearly display how God detests the unjust treatment of an image bearer removed. Scriptures that reveal God's heart for the oppressed and how the oppressor will suffer judgment from God removed. Scriptures intended to unify and reconcile people groups removed for the purpose of division and power. Scriptures that display God's heart for the nations and brings dignity to all human beings made in his image wiped away for selfish gain. Scriptures that bring freedom and awaken hope, gone. The scriptures that we're reading today, God's very word has the power to awaken hope and bring about transformation and new life. This word sparked hope 400 years ago and it sparked hope 600 years before Christ where we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 43. The children of Israel are oppressed. Many of us are experiencing those same feelings. God awakens hope. He says, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I sent to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am your Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They're extinguished, quenched like a wick. He reminds them of the Exodus. Why does this matter? 
John Oswalt says that in the Exodus, God demonstrated his lordship over both nature and human nations. But that's not the only thing God demonstrates. He goes on to say that God also showed both his desire and his ability to save. And Isaiah's, and as Isaiah's audience would read these words and savor them for themselves, here we can imagine people getting excited. Why? Because when they look at their present reality, all they see is gloom. All they see is heartbreak. They're struggling. They're suffering. They're removed from home. And God speaks and reminds them about the exodus. Israel would have thought, well, if God's bringing this up, maybe he's going to raise up a deliverer among us, a man like Moses. Which one of us is going to be the next Moses? Is it, is it going to be you, friend? Maybe it'll be one of these children who have just been born. Maybe they will raise up and be our savior who brings freedom from the bondage that we're experiencing. One of our own will grow up to be Moses because through Moses, God parted the Red Sea. And they're thinking to themselves, we're not in Egypt, we're in Babylon. And so as they look around uh, the area that they're occupying, they immediately remember that this great city of Babylon is built along the banks of the Euphrates River. And this is significant because the city of Babylon was a walled off city. So according to history, Babylon's walls were considered impenetrable. The only way into the city was through one of its many gates or through the Euphrates River. And even then, the Babylonians had set grates inside of the river, uh, allowing the flow of the water, but preventing any unwanted visitors. But fueled with hope and remembering the God who has moved in the past. Surely some water and some grates can easily be moved. Surely God will allow safe passage and they can, they can walk over the dry riverbed the way their ancestors did. And, and after they're done walking on the riverbed, God will bring the river back over the Babylonian army, drowning them and their attempts to capture them. That's how God's going to move, right? Surely he will move in the same way. He must if he's bringing it up. That's how God works. Hope is being stirred. We can imagine people are getting excited over the prospect of deliverance. And as they read these scriptures that they've just stumbled upon, written hundreds of years earlier, and this memory of the Exodus is being invoked, everything seems to them predictable. They know how God is going to do it. It's funny uh, because whether we realize it or not, we want most things to be predictable. The way God's moved in the past, a very specific way, we want him to do it all over again. And when circumstances get beyond our control and, and, and things get us down, we want God to move and to deliver us and to bring hope and joy in a very specific and predictable way. We want things to go our way and we want to escape from the, the difficult parts of reality in a way that we've already thought through. And, and somewhere along the way in our lives, it seems like we were hardwired to not like uncertainty. In a study on stress and uncertainty published by uh, the Nature Communications Journal, researchers found this, quote, that uncertainty is more stressful than predictable negative consequences. Uncertainty is more stressful than predictable negative consequences. Uh, an example that is mentioned, it is really more stressful wondering whether you'll make it to your meeting on time than knowing you'll be late. It is more stressful wondering if you're about to get fired than being relatively sure about it. 
Uncertainty is more stressful than predictive, predictable negative consequences. And it seems like somewhere along the way, we've mapped for ourselves a future that we want to be predictable. Why? Because uncertainty just reveals that things are out of our control. We dislike uncertainty because it's a loss of control. And we train ourselves to avoid risk and only take the risk where we're absolutely certain of the outcomes. God's way in the past seems pretty certain. Surely that's how freedom will come. And here's where things get really interesting. After reminding them of how God has moved in the past, we get to verse 18 and the Lord says, Remember not the former things nor consider the things of old. After taking time to remind them of his faithfulness and delivering the ancestors from the enslavement that they were experiencing, he says, forget all that. What? I thought hope was stirred by looking at the past. And what we find is that the opposite of uncertainty is not control or certainty, it's surrender. And that's what the Lord is inviting us into. He says, forget the method of deliverance, but don't forget the deliverer. You will be rescued, but it will not look like the former things or the things of old. This will be a new thing. God is not predictable. He is not a formula or set of instructions that can be followed to get your desired outcome out of him. Verse 15 says, he is the creator of Israel, your king. God is the creator. This means that he has the ability to create an infinite number of possibilities for your life, each one different than the next, but each one rooted and grounded in love for you and desiring the best for you. He is the creator. This means he never gets tied up or he's never held back by creation or natural circumstances. He is supernatural God who creates and commands the world by simply speaking a word. And he says in verse 19, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. He is doing a new thing. In the Exodus, God took the people through the sea. Moses parted the water. We see that reminder in verse 16. The Lord makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. But the journey for freedom in this case will look like verse 19. He will make a way in the wilderness. Other translations say he will make a way in the desert. And what is so significant about this? There's a lot of symbolism tied up in here. The desert is the place that is not normally conducive for life. The desert is a place where unclean animals would go to live so that they could be separated uh, so that God's people wouldn't become ceremonially unclean. The desert is a dry place where things go to die. The desert is not a place where most needs are met. The desert is a place where hope gets lost. And despite all of this, God is transforming the wilderness to be a place where new life springs forth. God says, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Where is God working? Where is God doing a new thing? What is the ground that God will use to forge a future filled with hope, filled with freedom, filled with new life? The wilderness, the desert the parts of our lives that we thought couldn't be used by God, the parts of our lives that we keep from him, the areas where we feel like no hope is lost 
and life can't live there. God is the creator, forging a future, hope, new life, in areas that were once lost to sin become redeemed by him. Where is God moving? In the wilderness, in the desert. So, so what's the big deal? Why, why does this matter? Oh, think about what this means for you and I. We have a tendency to believe that life and hope and transformation is often found in living under the most ideal set of circumstances. Uh, not necessarily the best set of circumstances, just the most ideal. Uh, not necessarily the best job, but a, a job that's just good enough that, 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 that makes it easier to live and get stuff done. Not necessarily uh, the, the, the best career or, or, or the best relationship, but just one that satisfies my needs and makes me feel like I'm coming alive. And, and then and only then, when, when things are going ideal, uh, when, when things are going semi-okay for us, do we begin to feel like maybe the promise of hope and life and transformation is feasible? You see, as, as humans, we long for the most ideal, predictable set of circumstances. When everything goes exceptionally well, uh, so, uh, so well uh, that, that, that things are thriving, relationships are well, work is well, money is well, then and only then does it seem like we have enough energy at the end of the day to even begin entertaining the idea that God can move in our lives and that he can move in such a powerful way to completely transform our desires, habits, our entire lives. Only when stress is low does it seem uh, that, that, that life can be in a stable place that, that doesn't seem like hope and possibility can be absent, but the future of transformation can take root in our hearts. And here's the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom of God is that God doesn't need the most ideal set of circumstances in order to bring about transformation and renewal to your life. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. God does not need for you to have the best life and all of your parts in order so that he can move and do something in you and through you. Why? He is the creator. He is able to create and recreate life. He is creating rivers in the desert where there were once no rivers. He is making a way in the wilderness where there seems to be no way out. God does not need the most ideal set of circumstances in order to bring about transformation and renewal to your life. He works through men like Moses who on the surface seem unqualified because of a past history of violence and abandonment, but God is the creator who can do a new thing. God doesn't need the, 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 the most ideal set of circumstances. He can work through problematic situations like the one we see in John chapter 8 where a woman is caught in adultery and the high priest of the land snag her from her home, bring her to Jesus and say, teacher, the law says we should stone her and kill her. What shall we do, they said, in order to test him? And Jesus, who is not hurried or rushed, who is the creator and the recreator, kneels down writes something in the ground, gets up and says, let him who is without sin be the first one to stone her. And one by one, they begin to drop the stones and leave. And a person who's been guilty of sin has been rescued from death because Jesus saved her. God doesn't need the most ideal set of circumstances in order to bring about transformation. Remember, where is God working as he speaks to the prophet Isaiah? In the wilderness. 
in the desert where things go to die. And what we see is that the possibility for new life and hope and complete transformation is not anchored in circumstances. It's anchored in a God who can do a new thing through your circumstances. How is this possible? Jesus, the God-man, is born opposite of ideal circumstances. Enters into his creation, born of a virgin, laid in a feeding trough, uh, born into a most violent ear, one that history calls the massacre of the innocents, where Herod, king of Judea, orders the execution of all male children two years and under living near Bethlehem. Yet he is the God who makes a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And led by the spirit, Jesus goes into the wilderness, fasting 40 days and 40 nights and experiences brutal temptation by the enemy and where things go to die Jesus brings life and comes out alive. He is the God who does the old thing. He controls creation when he tells the stormy waters to be silent and stills the waters so he can walk on them. But he's also the God who's doing a new thing when he stands up at the conclusion of a feast celebrating a prophetic promise that God's presence would flow from the temple uh, as described in Ezekiel 47. And in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He makes a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. He is the God who does the old thing when we see him receive sacrificial offerings to deal with people's sin. But he is doing a new thing when the son becomes the sacrificial lamb. It is by his own blood that he redeems us from the bondage of sin, the mastery of the enemy, and secures for us a one and done eternal forgiveness. He is the God who does the old thing when his presence, his spirit, fills the temple, the place of worship and encounter in the Old Testament. But he does a new thing when he says, my people will become my temple. And no longer will my presence just normally visit, but through faith in Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit will reside in the hearts of God's children the way it dwelt in the temple. He's the God who does the old thing and he's doing a new thing. So much so that as Paul declares, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. New life is not dependent upon old circumstances or ideal circumstances. Behold, he is doing A new thing, as Isaiah said. What is it? The old has passed away, as Paul says. A prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah's words. Remember not the former things or the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. There is a God who has done a new thing. New life is possible in Christ Jesus relationship with God. Redemption and renewal is ours through faith. For the glory of God, new life can spring forth in the most broken parts of our cities and lives. And for the glory of God, new life springing forth from here, going into broken and barren parts out there, 
God can use to bring about transformation and renewal to our families, to our workplaces, to our homes, to areas where we think things go to die. God can make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Church, let's be springs of living water together. Let's close in prayer.